Welcome to West Church. We're so thankful you've joined us today. Whether you're joining us in person or virtually, we're excited to come together to praise, worship, and receive God's glory. If this is your first time with us, we'd like to give you a very special welcome. If you're returning, thanks for joining us again. We appreciate it, and we appreciate you. Now, let's prepare to be inspired and encouraged as we enter into worship. We've been studying our way through Romans chapter 8 in the new year, and over the past few weeks we've been discussing <clears throat> what God is doing in our lives as we groan and as we sometimes suffer hardship. And last week we saw the first part of the passage which we read today that as we are groaning, God the Holy Spirit is groaning together with us and interceding and, as it were, translating our earthly human prayers to the heart of the Father. And it ends with the phrase, the, the saying that God is working all things together for our good in response to the Holy Spirit interceding for us in prayer. Way back when I was in college, I read a book that I would say was one of the more life-changing books I've ever read. I bet a lot of you have probably read it, and I would recommend it for every young person thinking about God's will for their life. It's entitled, In His Steps, written by Charles Sheldon. It's not a new book. It's an old book written in 1896. It's a novel. It's a fictional story. And the book begins with a scene in a downtown, big, prosperous church, and a homeless man who's been living downtown was in worship, and at the conclusion of the service, just before the pastor dismisses the congregation, he walks down the center aisle, turns around, and starts speaking to the whole congregation. This is how the story begins. It's a pretty good, it's pretty good you know, you can, you can feel the tension easy on describing it, right? So he walks down, he stands in front of the congregation, and he starts explaining what it felt like him for a homeless man to live downtown and to be in church with these people. And he talks about how nobody looked him in the eye, nobody welcomed him, people generally walked around him and avoided him. And he ends, he's very unaccusatory, he's unassuming, he doesn't rant, he doesn't rave, he just says, you know, I wonder if that's what Jesus would do. And that simple question, what would Jesus do, in the book, sparks a citywide revival. It goes viral. And all of the people, one by one, small groups by small groups, the pastor, some of the people in the church begin thinking, oh, this man, what would Jesus do? We did not do to him what Jesus would do. And they start asking themselves the question in their lives and in their ministry, what would Jesus do? Well, that book was written in 1896, and I think it was in the 2000s when people were all walking around with these t-shirts that had four letters in it, WWJD question mark, and wearing those yellow rubber wristbands, WWJD question mark. 
That, those letters stood for what would Jesus do, and they come from that book. What would Jesus do? Uh, more recently, one teacher who I've been enjoying listening to recently by the name of John Mark Comer, he speaks about how God, Jesus came to make apprentices Instead of using the Latin word discipulus, from which we get our word disciple, which really doesn't mean anything in today's culture, he says we should talk about becoming apprentices of Jesus. And he says an apprentice of Jesus is someone who is with Jesus, someone who is like Jesus, and somebody who does the things that Jesus does. And he spends a lot of time unpacking that. Mark Fee, who was here with us a couple of weeks ago, said that there was really only one command that Jesus gave us under which all other commands of the Bible that Jesus, that Jesus gave are, is subsumed, uh, subsumed, okay? All the commands that Jesus gave can really be umbrellaed by a single command, love one another as I have loved you. As I have loved you is being with Jesus. Through word and through action and through the Holy Spirit, the Lord Jesus loves us. Loving one another is how we become like Jesus in our relationships and in this world. And the words and the actions in which we take are the th doing the things that Jesus did. In our passage this morning, in verse 29, Paul mentions that the ultimate goal of God's working, even in the midst of our suffering, verse 29, is that we might be conformed to the image of His Son. God is working, always working, forever working on behalf of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And what is He working to do? To conform us to the image of His Son. He is molding us, shaping us, building us, breaking us down, building us back so that we might be in the image of the Lord Jesus. So what does that mean? Are we all supposed to grow beards and start wearing robes and sandals? No. It's about our inner lives and our outer lives of words and deeds mirroring the life and the love of Jesus. So, if Jesus was a 57-year-old pastor in West Church of Peabody, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus be like? If Jesus was a 40-something-year-old mom who's at home schooling children, what would Jesus do there? If Jesus was a 16-year-old high school student living at home, what would Jesus do as a 16-year-old high school student? If Jesus was a 90-something-year-old widow who lives independently, how would Jesus manifest Himself in that type of setting? If Jesus was a 20-something-year-old single man starting His career, how would Jesus show His love to be true through you and I wherever He has us and whatever He has us doing? That is what I understand Paul to mean when he says he wants us to be conformed to the image of his Son. 
In our passage today, Paul tells us five particular ways in which God is working to conform us to the image of Jesus. He foreknew us, He predestined us, He called us, He justified us, and He glorified us. These five things have sometimes been called the order of salvation, that is, they are a description of how God rescues or redeems or saves a person from beginning to end, cradle to grave, and before. You need to know that I have an entire shelf of books written about these subjects, and we're not going to cover all those things today. We're just going to be sort of scratching the surface. And two of the things that God did, He does before time and outside of time. And three of these things that God does, He does within time. So we're going to consider what God did before time and what God does within time. You're ready. All right, here we go. Let's talk first about what God did before time. You know, every day we wake up, the sun rises, we go about our business, the sun sets, we go to sleep, we wake up the next day, day after day, week after week, year after year. We only know life within the time and space continuum as we experience it. God is different. One of the things that often blows our minds and is difficult to conceive of about God is that God is before and outside of time. He has always been He will always be, is able to see and know what we perceive as our beginning and our end. He is not bound within time as we know it. He may choose to work within time, but also He works outside of time. And the two words that Paul uses about what God does in our behalf, He foreknew us and He predestined us are terms that refer to God's ability to work before and outside of time as we know it. So verse 29 says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. To foreknow something in the Bible is used in a variety of ways. It means to just know something ahead of time or have known something from before or to have a relationship from before. But when it is used of God and it refers to His knowledge of what will happen and what He's going to do in time, used of God towards an individual, towards a person, It refers to His knowing which determines the outcome for a particular person. In the Hebrew Bible, before the New Testament, the word know, yada, can also mean to love. And if that's the case here, God's foreknowing of us refers to God's decision to love and care for us before we were ever in existence. 
in a way that we cannot fully understand. God knew us before we came into existence, and knowing us, He chose to love us. For God to foreknow you means that He knew you and loved you in particular since before time. For God to foreknow us is the first move of God in the order of salvation. The second word he uses is he predestined us. Predestining is a deciding act of God before its occurrence in time as we know it. God's predetermined purpose to act and to do something. When directed towards a person, it means his selection of them to receive a particular outcome from him, in this case, eternal salvation. God, having foreknown you and I in particular, appointed us in time and space to be recipients of His love and His salvation. He mapped out your life and He mapped out mine. And the destination that He mapped out for us was that he, we would each be redeemed by Him and saved from our lives of sin and shame. And God's predestination of a person to be saved is also known in the Bible as His election or His choosing. Now, I recognize that, that some folks struggle with the idea of the determined will of God to save some. And Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 takes this discussion way further than we have time for today. And you'll want to read that, and you're well, we're, I'd love to talk to you about it. But it is the very determining will of God that allows the promise of verse 28 to be true. And we know that God works all things together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. It's God's ability to determine things beforehand in space and time that gives us the assurance that He intends to keep this promise. It is this promise that gives us assurance that no matter how hard life gets, God has already determined beforehand that He has worked out the whole ordeal of our life for His good. And it was God's determining plan that initiated redemption in Jesus long before we even admitted that we needed it. It was His determining plan that created and allowed for the fall and all that's gone wrong in this world, that he, and He knew He was going to work redemption in the world through Israel and finally through Jesus. And Paul wants us to know that before time as an act of pure grace and pure unadulterated mercy on His own initiative and volition, God foreknows and predestines people to be redeemed. And it is so very, very humbling to think of God caring for you and I that much. His willingness to do this has nothing to do with our worthiness, nothing to do with our appearance or our skills, nothing to do with our foreseen goodness or lack thereof, nothing to do with our willingness or lack thereof. 
Our salvation is a pure act of God deciding for us to be those who receive a gift we could never earn or pay back. And the only true and fitting response to God is awe and wonder how great thou art. God's actions before time in our behalf should cause us to overflow with praise and unending joy that God before time knew me and chose me. That is amazing grace. Thank you, God. Praise you, God. In 1 Corinthians 1, verses 27 through 29, Paul writes, but God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in this world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing that, the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God is for us outside of time. And then he describes the things that God does within time. Verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. The word to call is a very general word, which can mean something just as simple as to name or to summon. But when it is used of God towards us, it refer refers to the particular way that God in His grace draws and summons us to Himself so that we respond favorably to His bidding. This is sometimes referred to by theologians as the effective or the effectual call of God. Based on statements like that of Jesus in John 6, where He says, no one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him. And John 6, 65, this is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted to him by My Father. Based upon words like this by Jesus, Paul here is now describing how in time God is reaching into our hearts and calling us to Himself. He draws us, we hear His voice, and we respond. The effectual call is different from what's sometimes called the general call. So when you or I go and talk to a group of people or Billy Graham or Max Lucado or anybody speaks to a group of people and we invite them and suggest to them and plead with them and call them to believe in the Lord Jesus, that is a general call. That is us extending the hope of Jesus to somebody else, praying and pleading and reaching that they might believe. But when God calls a person, their hearts are transformed. Their hearts are inclined to respond. They hear God's voice and they have a heart from God to say yes. And this is sometimes referred to in Christian thinking as conversion or regeneration. God gives us a soft heart to favorably respond to His offer of salvation. It is a gift of His grace. And we have this word justified. And we've talked about this before. Uh, just some doubling back to repeat. The word 
The word used of God is different from the way we typically use this word in English. We would typically say that when somebody had a good reason for doing something, that they are justified. They were justified in what they did because they had a good reason for doing it. The Greek word here rendered to justify or justification is, is a legal term. It's a term that takes, it's taken from the courtroom in Paul's day. It's a term which describes what happens when an accused individual is declared to be innocent or free of guilt in a court. In Romans, the word to justify and the noun justification is described in chapter 3, verse 21, all the way to chapter 5, verse 21. So there's three chapters in the book of Romans about this, okay? And you can go back and read those. When it's used of God... What it means is what happens to a sinner or a wrongdoer in the sight of God in light of the truth of what Jesus did on the cross. What it means is that God takes the righteousness of Jesus, His perfect record, and He applies it to us when we believe in Him, and He takes our sinful, imperfect record and He applies it to Jesus on the cross. We are forgiven, we are accepted because He was condemned in our place. When we believe the penalty of our sin is charged to Jesus because of His death on the cross, and the righteousness of Jesus is applied to us so that we are completely accepted and forgiven because Jesus offered Himself as our substitute. Our sin is removed, and Jesus' acceptance is granted. Here's what this means, that God's perspective on us is always viewing us through the lenses, through the lens of the cross of Jesus Christ. That is why Paul says in our passage, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God will never condemn someone for whom His Son Jesus died. Never, ever. When God justifies us, we are eternally forever freed from all guilt and shame before the eyes of God Almighty. And that's what Paul means when he said that God justified us in time. One more word to go. <clears throat> glorified us. To be glorified refers to the condition of Jesus after He was raised from the dead. John chapter 7, verse 39 describes this. When Jesus rose from the dead, He received a glorified body. He ascended back into heaven, and He is forever glorified there at the right hand of the Father. And because we have been called... And because we have been justified, God intends in the future to glorify us with everlasting renewed bodies. These old bodies of weakness and frailty are going to get traded in for a whole new model. <laughs> yeah.
Yeah. I think it'll be more like that when it happens, more than that when it happens. Our struggle with sin, our struggle with harmful desires, our struggle with our actions and our words and our thoughts will be purified. They will be purged from our being, and we will enter into a forever condition of new bodies. Yeah. This is what it means to be glorified. There will, never, there will be a new heavens, there will be a new earth, there will be a new city, there will be new bodies for all those whom God has called and justified in this life. He even says God has glorified us in the past tense like it's, almost, it's, it's accomplished already. It's just coming. So in our lives, in the course of time and history, God is at working in us he is calling us effectively to Himself. He is justifying us through the blood of Jesus. He is glorifying us with new bodies through and through so that we can enjoy Him forever. And in all five of these ways, both before time and in time, God is unmistakably for us. We know that God is for us because He foreknew us. We know He is for us because He predestined us. We know He is for us because He called us. We know He is for us because He justified us. We know He is for us because He will glorify us. But realize this, except for the fact that He has told us these things in His Word, we cannot always see these things. I cannot go into a laboratory and test them. History is going to bear some of these things out, at least some of the bare bones. But really, these are spiritual realities described by words on a page from God that we are challenged to believe and to embrace with our hearts and our minds. I cannot convince you, I can persuade you, but God can convince you which is grace and mercy, and that's the thing that He does. He is conforming us and shaping us into the image of His Son, Jesus. The order of salvation is a glimpse into the heart of God towards us, His redeemed sons and daughters that is deep and profound from before time onto eternity. Verse 29 says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Paul refers to Jesus as the firstborn of many brothers. Jesus, the Son of God in human flesh, left glory, entered earthly time and space, was crucified, buried, and raised from the dead, and ascended into heaven, and is now at the right hand of the Father in glory. He is the firstborn. He is the ultimate. He is the beginning and the end. Jesus is the crucified and risen firstborn Son of God. He is the firstborn in the sense that He is the most preeminent of all, unique. But there are those who will follow. And we are born after a fashion that He was born. Because of Jesus' redeeming work for us, we become adopted sons and daughters of God. 
When He died for our sin, we died with Him. When He rose from the dead, we were raised with Him. He is the Son of God from eternity. He is the firstborn of all many, but like Him, we will be raised. He is our older brother, and we are His adopted brothers and sisters. We are bound with Him from death to resurrection, and now, because the Spirit of Jesus lives within us, we are becoming like Him, and we will be like Him ultimately in a glorified body when we see Him as He is. God is working. He is always working, 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 and working from before time, now within time, until the end of the age as we know it, in behalf of our good. And how is He working? He is foreknowing us before we even existed. He's predestining us, choosing us for Himself to be recipients of His grace. He is calling us, reaching into our very hearts in time and space, justifying us, removing the guilt of our sin and stay from our lives forever and glorifying us, sustaining us every single step of the way from beginning until end until we meet Him face to face and become like He is, glorified men and women. Jesus is the firstborn. We will be His brothers and sisters in a new heavens and a new earth. That is our destiny. And this is what God is accomplishing every day and every moment through every event of our lives. This is how much our God is for us.